Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guests this week are Ted Strauss and Hillary Davis. Ted and Hillary are associated with the Waking Down group, and uh, I, I love w interviewing Waking Down people for some reason, I, I, for reasons that I think we'll touch upon during this interview. And there have been three other interviews of such people, um, the Boggs, the Gilberts, and uh, Sandra Glickman, and I thoroughly enjoyed them all. So, and they all highly recommended uh, Ted and Hillary, so I, I really wanted to interview them. And we almost did it about a month ago, but they didn't have a very good camera, and we, we kind of realized that this interview would probably be a pivotal event in the history of human spirituality, and we, so we wanted to get a good camera and do it right. For the last four or five days, I've been listening to um, audio of Ted and Hillary's YouTube recordings, of which there are many, and um, we will link to their site, which is just tedstrauss.com, from batgap.com. But I highly recommend that anybody who enjoys this interview check out their site and click on the video link and uh, start watching those YouTube videos because I found them really fascinating and enjoyable and pretty amazing, actually, in terms of the journey that both of them have taken individually and together, and uh, both the high points of that journey and the more difficult periods were all rather fascinating and very frank and down-to-earth and honest and genuine. So I, I really enjoyed getting to know you guys, and I, I sort of feel like your friend, even though we've never met, just from having listened to about five hours of you now. <laughs> it's really, really been enjoyable. So there are many ways we could take this conversation you know, your individual spiritual journeys, what you've done together, what you do with Waking Down. I'd like to make it as autobiographical as possible rather than just an opportunity to expound a teaching, and I'm, I'm sure you'll do that. I, I thought, if you feel like it, we might start with the 1965 World's Fair in Flushing <laughs> Meadows, New York, um, because I was there too, actually. Um, oh, wow. Yeah along with my friend Ralph Preston, who happens to be doing all the post-production work on these interviews. Wow. Um, and we almost missed the bus going back to Connecticut. It was quite an adventure. The reason I mentioned the 1965 World's Fair is that um, you t said in one of your YouTube videos that you had had a vision of Hillary there. I thought it might make it a good place to start yeah. with this whole thing. Well, yeah, okay, so what happened was I was walking around this fountain and I, I got some vision of my future wife. And it was very clear to me at the time. It made a pretty deep impression. And I was just walking all over the fair trying to find this this wonderful lady who I was feeling. Who was just a girl. Who was just a girl, but what could I say? You know, my hormones were all kicked in. And something about that made this a very magical event. And I uh, didn't find her, but as it turned out, she was actually living in Queens. So she was close by. She was going to the fair. And I uh, just didn't see her that time. And for whatever reason, for whatever karmic reason, it took until I was 42 to finally meet her. And after meeting her, it took me a few days to, I think just a few days to, to have the vision click in. Hmm. But when it did, I just, I knew that this was my wife. Wow, you remembered the incident at the fair? and I remembered the incident at the fair. I remembered the picture I got, and there she was. Cool. And so then I had to essentially proceed to try and convince her that she was my wife. <laughs> Did you tell her the fair story or just skip that? And just no, not until much later. <laughs> much later. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I had to work on her for a while just to get a date. Mm -hmm. I think it took me about three months to get my first date with her. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite that long, but she was pretty resistant. In fact, she was avoiding me. She would see me and run the other way. Huh. I think she thought I was just like this crazy, weird little nerd, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> One day her blender broke. Juicer. 
Their juicer broke, right. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't tell this whole other part of the story, which explains why I was right there when her juicer broke. I was living and working in San Francisco and commuting a lot to L.A., uh, doing some programming work. I just got sick of the city and I got sick of the job, and I decided to move to Marin, and it had to be in a particular neighborhood that gave me access to the city. So I picked a little neighborhood, decided it should be right there near Tam Junction, and then I hatched one of my crazy schemes. I was working for an employer in the East Bay, and I figured I should find a woman who's a cook and a masseuse, and then I could do some crazy trade where I could get the employer to pay for her rent, make it look like a satellite office, and then I could trade for the cooking and the massage work, and, and life would be perfect. Well, as it turned out, I had had a massage from Hillary about a year earlier, and it was a great massage, and I kept her card, which was unusual. I just don't, didn't keep cards. And I found her card, and I pulled it out one day when I needed a massage, and a regular person wasn't available. I called her up, made an appointment, drove up to her place, which turned out to be near Tam Junction. And when I walked in, there was a picture of Ramana Maharshi on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is a spiritual person. Mm. And... Um, so we had a little chit about chit chat about that. She gave me a massage. It was an amazing, fabulous, great massage as usual, like the first time. And I, I, I don't know if it was that time or the time after that I got off the table and kissed her feet. <laughs> she really did that. <laughs> <laughs> Which embarrassed the crap out of her. <laughs> You're gonna have to work hard in this interview to reestablish your um, your legitimacy. <laughs> uh, yeah. As a sane person. <laughs> well, I'm happy to just leave it at zero, personally. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> then I don't have to live up to anything. Yeah, good. <laughs> you know, within a few days, I recognized her as the woman I had seen in my vision. I don't know. I just fell madly, crazily in love with her. And, uh, you know, like I was saying, it took her quite a while to, to get it. Mm -hmm. um, I had to work on her for quite a while, and she kept running away from me, and... Finally, I got my first date with her, and uh, I made the big mistake of asking her what her favorite color was on that date, uh, uh. which pegged me as a very undeep guy. Very right, undeep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which was true, you know. Finally, uh, you know, we, we started getting together, and, um, and then I worked the deal with the employer and got cooking and massage. She's actually an amazing cook and an amazing masseuse. And, a, and really also a phenomenal uh, practitioner of Jinshin Jitsu, huh. which is uh, an Eastern an Eastern healing form. Hmm. Which, uh, Japanese some, form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Maybe we we'll talk about that at some point. But sure. The relationship just sort of blossomed from there. I'm not sure where you want to go from here. But well, I'm thinking maybe, uh, I'm thinking let's have Hillary tell her side of that story, and then we'll, we'll go yeah. back and kind of, you know, go back to the beginnings of when you first got bit by the spiritual bug, both of you, and kind of work our way forward from there. Great, right. okay. Well, I had no vision at the World's Fair. <laughs> um, Except that it's a small world. Yes, it is a small <laughs> world. After all. Yeah. You're thinking Disneyland. That's, that's a Disneyland. That, that World's Fair. That what was that there? That debuted at that World's Fair. Oh, okay. Well, I vaguely remember Ted when I gave him a massage at Shibui Gardens, which is where I worked. And then, you know, when he called me back for a massage, I, I had remembered that I had given that massage to him. Um, and I, I felt immediately with Ted a feeling of friendliness, like I had, I had known him before. It was just like a friend. Um, but I wasn't drawn to him in a romantic kind of way. Some of us are slower to process. Yeah. Absolutely. She, she operates at a much slower wavelength than uh -huh. I And he's really fast. Yeah. yeah. So that's like, Bata and Kappa or something. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so 
Let's see. I I liked him as a friend, but like I said, I wasn't drawn to him as as a partner. And so he would pursue me with his energy, and I would try to avoid him, as he said. I would go to the laundromat to do my laundry, and he would be there, and I'd kind of try to walk around the car so he wouldn't see me. And it happened at Whole Foods as well. I was shopping, and I would see him kind of looking up, and I'd kind of skirt around the other way. He, at the time, wasn't my idea of who I thought I wanted to be with. And I think that's a big mistake so many of us make, personally. What happened? Basically, Ted held a space for me to come and go. Like, move toward him and go away. Move toward him, go away. And nobody had ever held that kind of constant space for me before. Hmm. And it was so moving to me. And I started to feel the love in his heart and how much unconditional love he really had. And I'd never experienced anything like that either. Hmm. You know, my childhood was kind of one of those scary, unpredictable childhoods where you never knew when the shoe was going to drop next. So Ted provided that stability. And then he taught me about relationship, what was really possible in relationship, and how to communicate, how to, how to be there. You know, and, and I taught him about quiet and silence and not having to entertain me and, and just, just to be quiet. She used to say, <laughs> Ted, come down. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have to entertain me. And uh-huh. I wasn't used to that at all. Huh. Not at all. So it took me a while to get the message and learn that I could just chill out and be me. And she actually liked me a lot better. It's not trying to be entertaining. So there came a point when it, the scales just tipped. And I, I just felt how much in love I was with Ted. Um, because of his heart, I would say, the depth of his heart. Yeah, you know, I was... And my persistence. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to one of your talks that you gave in front of a group of people, and you, you basically started the talk by crying and telling the people how beautiful you, they all were and how moved you were to see such a beautiful group of people sitting there. I was kind of impressed by that, firstly because I don't cry that easily. I mean, just such a tenderness and sensitivity is kind of unusual, and, and also an unguardedness, you know, so, some guy sitting in front of 50 people or whatever and, and starting his talk by crying. You know, how many people would feel comfortable doing that? Um, and, it, you know, then you, after a minute or so, you composed yourself and went on and gave a really nice talk and answered questions and everything. But I thought that was really sweet. I learned that from Hillary. I learned how not to live, you know, just up in my head. Right. From being around Hillary. And I also have to say, it wasn't just Hillary. Hillary is kind of like... Um, a, a huge magnet drawing down into my body and into the earth and mm-hmm. into the world. It's she's an, emba- an embodiment magnet, right? And um, but you know her energy goes perfectly with the down part of waking down, which Samuel was already teaching us. Mm-hmm. Samuel would often do what Ted did. Samuel would his heart would just come out yeah. through his tears, yeah. through his laughter. Uh-huh. I've seen uh, Ama do that quite a bit, although she's a woman, of course. But, you know, Amachi, the hugging saint, she. She sometimes will just start crying a lot. She'll be sitting on her couch and st- and just start to cry. Sometimes it'll be some crippled child that comes up or something, but other times she'll just cry and everybody's wondering why. And um, they, they speculate maybe she's crying for the world or whatever, but I don't know. But there's just that sort of spontane- spontaneity and openness, unguardedness. I think that's one of the things about the waking down teachers in general and the senior practitioners in this work. It's not just about learning to open your heart. Right. It's, it's very much about coming into a realization of non-separateness from other people in the world. And when you 
awaken into that non-separateness, you simply don't have the buffers anymore to protect yourself from all of the feelings that you thought would wipe you out. Mm-hmm. When, when you find out that actually consciousness isn't obliterated, when it's you know faced with difficult or deep or strong feelings, life is extremely different. I mean, that's another whole thing we can talk about later, but that's just a, a, an enormous piece of what this work is about, yeah. which is the tantric challenge of coming into the world with your awakened consciousness and be fully present with all that the world has to bring us uh-huh. in relationships and in our, in our work and everything. Maybe we should just pursue this now and go into the histories later, you know, since this is coming up, it might be interesting to just delve into this and at some point we'll loop back and, you know, examine how you got here. And I've been thinking about this point you've made just now uh, for a few days as I've been listening to your things because I can't help but sort of compare the way you seem to experience life and talk about that experience with other spiritual presentations and teachers. I I would have to say that a great many of them do seem rather disembodied. In fact, not only disembodied, but disimpersoned. Uh, There seem to be a number of teachers who would consider our whole conversation so far in this interview to be ridiculous because there is no one, there is no person. And so what is all this fuss about relationships and feelings and and all this stuff? There's no one home. You know, you you hear this all over and over again. And um, I've actually been having friendly debates with both, uh, you know, people who, uh, this one guy who's the head of a website that that interviews a lot of uh, Neo-Advaita people, and then this other friend of mine who keeps telling me that you have to pretty much surrender the ego or destroy the ego or whatever. And I'm trying to kind of understand how to talk with them because my experience so far and my understanding, which is always subject to revision, is that maybe surrender the ego is an okay term because it just implies having it take a back seat as opposed to totally running the show. You know, there, there's another element that comes in and, and tends to predominate. But I don't see how you can be alive and not have a sense of self. I mean, uh, how would you walk through a door or, you know, there, there's always going to be some kind of preferences. Well, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that whole thing about self and no self and ego and no ego because uh, as far as I'm concerned, that whole um, discussion arises from a serious confusion. And there's different levels of the confusion. One level of the confusion has to do with um, the overall process of human unfoldment. And the thing is that as we humans unfold as a species, we get to look back and see what, what's possible. But until we unfold to the next level, it's, it's impossible for us to look forward and figure out what's possible. Not that long ago in human history, in fact, quite recently. I think there are certain levels of human unfoldment and development that just were not possible. And the reason they weren't possible is because humanity simply hadn't uh, grown up enough to get to this place. We had to get to a point where we had mobilized sufficient resources that we could have enough free energy and attention or, you know, luxurious time, you know, time to sit and contemplate our navels, whereby we could get far enough in our recognition of who we are that then we could help each other find that. So the place we had come to, even quite recently, the best place we had come to was to be able to awaken to consciousness. And the awakening to consciousness and the way we found how to awaken consciousness, that obviously has been evolving for a couple thousand years at least. It's been evolving in the context of humanity's unfoldment so far. And most of the awakening to consciousness really got started in India, you know, and points east. And the context in which that was happening 
was very different than it is today, extremely different. The point was that back then, there was a sort of, um, I'm not sure how to describe this, but there was a, it's almost as if there was a kind of a membrane between our recognition of consciousness and our recognition of our world and bodily selves. <clears throat> so that those who had the persistence, um, such as the Buddha, um, to do the work it takes to penetrate through what appeared to be this nearly impenetrable veil, when they landed on the other side of it, the experience was, holy cow, this is different. This is completely different. This is what's real. This is the only thing that's real. The rest of it was a big illusion. And that was the real experience of those explorers at those times. There was nothing wrong with that. The recognition of consciousness in that way was where we, what we were up to at the time. But since that time, and especially I'd say since Ramana, Ramana really broke up in some huge pieces in the awakening of consciousness. And something about his presence in the world made it much more easy for other people who followed him to recognize and awaken to consciousness. But the weird thing is, as these people begin to awaken to consciousness, they also begin to report seeming to lose it. It's like, oh, I had it when I was with him, and I lost it when I left. Uh, you know, or I'd go on a retreat, and I'd have a big awakening to consciousness, and then I'd go home, and I'd, I'd eat a steak, and I'd lose it, or I'd have sex, or I'd get angry. And, you know, we would be thinking, it must be because I did something wrong. And this is the experience most spiritual seekers have been having pretty much in the last 30, 40 years. You know. Wouldn't you say that's um, maybe an, a normal stage in the unfoldment of it, simply because when it's, uh, when it's new, when it's delicate, it's not very well stabilized or integrated, and so it, it, it might be fleeting, it might come and go until it's, it kind of gets more established? Yes, I think there's a number of different dimensions of that. One is exactly what you said. It takes a while to cultivate the recognition of it. And another piece of it has to do with cultivating the recognition of consciousness embodied which is a very different experience than the recognition of consciousness disembodied. I mean, here, I'll tell you a little of my experience. When I started practicing TM, within the first couple of weeks of being initiated, I was sitting in the back of my parents' car. We were driving somewhere. It was time to meditate, so I closed my eyes. And I went into Nervicalpa Samadhi for, I don't know, a couple minutes. Now, Nervicalpa means, I, I don't formless, know. Formless ecstasy. Formless, like okay. Nothing. Emptiness, but I... And at the time, I didn't even know what was happening. It was just so empty that there was no recognition of anything. There was just not even a recognition of emptiness. It was complete obliteration of self. Right. When I came out of that, I knew that I, I knew what I just came out of, and I had been educated enough to get that that was some kind of consciousness experience. Um, and then over the years in the TM movement and being a teacher, I had many experiences of consciousness, but I never had that one again. Not quite like that. Right. And you know, a lot of people would look at that and think, "Oh, I had it once, and I've lost it. I'm a total failure." But the way I look at it is, no, I evolved. Right. My experience of consciousness became integrated. And, and what that means is that <clears throat> I could recognize that consciousness is part of my experience with my eyes open during the day. So as time went on, it was less about closing my eyes, practicing a technique, transcending as if to somewhere else, and you know, having an experience of consciousness and coming back. Instead, it was more like, oh, yeah, it's here. It's now. It's part of me. It doesn't have to be separate, and I don't have to go somewhere else to get that that's what's going on. Right. And that's part of what I help do in their process of coming to the recognition of consciousness, is get that their doubts about consciousness oftentimes are very much based in their past experience, or in their comparison with something that they read or heard a teacher talk about. In this whole uh, thing that you just said, though, um, just the way you said it was, I had this experience, it went, I had other experiences, uh, you know, 
and, and eventually I recognized that consciousness was there in the midst of activity and so on. Um, but there's always this reference to an I. And what these other folks are saying right. that, I w that I was referring to in my question is that there is no I, you know, to refer to, and that the, the whole notion of one is a misconception or a misperception, and um, that there's nobody here, nobody home, you know, that kind of thing. There, there essentially is no person. And, the, and the, the sense of personhood is delusion or illusion or whatever. Uh, and so all this discussion of emotions and experience, development of experience and progressive stages of development and so on and so forth, to them, sounds like complete nonsense. And I was going right. to use another word than nonsense, but this may end up on television, and I meant to remind you there are certain words we probably shouldn't use because then we'll have to edit them out or this won't get, get on local access TV. So let's, let's keep that in mind. <laughs> Not that you've used any yet, but... Keep it clean. Keep yeah. It clean. Okay. <laughs> you want to respond to that one first, or do you want to? Well, why don't you respond to it first? Okay. I feel it on lots of different levels. Yeah, I feel it saying. on lots of different levels, too. Um, I think the, the place I would start with that is by saying that um, experiences of awakening come in many different shapes and forms. Everybody has their own unique human design. I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. And um, some human design types are prone to experience consciousness as emptiness, formlessness, and selflessness. Mm -hmm. Other human design types are prone to experience consciousness as fullness and light and um, totality. Yeah. And um, a movement into life in a particular way. Exactly. With particular energy and gusto and zest for life. Whereas others yeah. are more right. open. Mm -hmm. Right. So what happens I actually heard Marshi say something very similar. He said that according to different types of nervous systems or different makeup, some people will experience it as bliss more and some more unboundedness and different qualities for different people. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, for so long, for until maybe about the 60s or 70s or 80s, most of the people who had any kind of awakening that was big enough and flashy enough to prove to them that they were awake, they'd go write a book. You know, usually yeah. it was a guy because it's the guys who had the energy to go push something into the world like that, mm -hmm. uh, not usually the women. So the guys who had that particular kind of experience, you know, basically they're thinking, this is obviously a serious major awakening, and in my experience, there's no self. Right. And, and when I look at other people and I see how oriented around themselves they are, it looks like a big joke to me. So they spin dharma around that and they assume that that is the highest truth because what they have realized is apparently the ultimate transcendental reality of existence. Mm -hmm. And that's a true statement, but that doesn't mean it's the ultimate awakening. Right. I mean, to me, there's awakening beyond the ultimate awakening in consciousness. <clears throat> and that is the awakening that brings consciousness here to earth. Mm -hmm. And into relationship, which is another thing at some point I'd love to get into. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Do you, have you ever heard of Mariana Kaplan? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, she's written that book, uh, which I'm slowly working my way through, Halfway Up the Mountain, The Error okay. of Premature Claims to Enlightenment. And it's a real treat to read. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with every little thing she says because, you know, who am I to say? But I don't agree with everything anybody says. But uh, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, quotes from different people and so on, and, and examples of how there is a tendency to um, assume that what we've got is the, the, the big enchilada, you know, and, uh, and then just as you said, to kind of compare it with what other people seem to be experiencing and to, to kind of relegate them to a, 
a, you know, confused status if it differs from what we're experiencing. Exactly. And see, in my experience, what, what happens much more organically is that people go through their awakening process in waves, in oscillations. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start over here, and then we'll have an experience, and then go, you know, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. And that, you know, everybody's got their own particular wave period mm -hmm. for that that's unique to their nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the people who, for, who were designed to have these big flashy experiences, they get, the, you know, the upside of that is <clears throat> they don't go through the same kind of doubts about their awakening process as other people. Mm. Well, I mean, I had a lot of flashy, phenomenal experiences. And I way dropped into the doubts in the other part of it. So. Right, okay. I, Hillary's unique. I think you, it's a she can have flashy experiences and doubt. Well, is that because you lost the flashy experiences and, that, and so you fell into doubt after you lost them or what? Uh, well, this happened after my consciousness awakening, uh -huh. which I experienced before I met Samuel, mm -hmm. before I got involved in that. Incidentally, and you guys have referred to Samuel a number of times, but we've never said who he is actually. Why don't you just tell us briefly, who's yeah. in a, yeah, in a, just in a sentence, who Samuel is, and then we can go yeah. on. Samuel Bonder is the founder of Waking Down and Mutuality, and uh, he was a very close uh, biographer and helper to Dafri John for 18 years, mm -hmm. and uh, then found himself having to leave and find his own awakening because he wasn't really getting the empowerment he needed there. And he did quite rapidly after that, and then uh, we were in some of the earliest groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hillary actually found him before I did. And then, and then we became highly involved with Samuel and have been so ever since. Good. So that just explains who he is. Okay, Hillary, I'm sorry, I kind of interrupted you. You were in the middle of talking about doubts and flashy experiences. Well, your consciousness experience and then what happened. After my consciousness awakening, like I said, for quite a few months it was like my mind was gone mm -hmm. and there was just light and all kinds of phenomenal body experiences that were happening to me and then um, after a few months it felt like my mind came in with a vengeance mm. I used to call it Nazi mind because <laughs> that felt right. just very intense and I went to my teacher at the time who I'd been sitting with and I said, what do I do with this? Because it was, it just kind of threw me for a loop. He didn't really seem to know what to do with me. So I ended up going to India and being with uh, Punjaji. Uh -huh. is that, that's Papaji, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Were you but, there when Andrew Cohen and Gangaji no, and all those people were after, there? It was after they had been. This okay. was in 92 for me. Uh -huh. And then what? So I was pretty desperate when I was there. And I had more and more phenomenal experiences but you know there was so much going on for me at the time there was everything was lit up there was just a lot of anger and self-hatred and self-loathing and just all of the critical negative states were really up for me even though I experienced more and more phenomenal places and in a way a very deep peace I still felt like my relative reality was not taken Seriously, you know, because advaitics don't take relative reality seriously. You mean by Papaji, he wasn't taking it seriously? Well, let me just say that's not where he went in being. That's not where he was led to go in being, was into the relative in the way that I felt at the time I wished I could have yeah. that kind of support. So what happened for me was 
I came back to California. I'd been, I got really sick in India. Jardia, <laughs> my kidneys were in yeah. spasm. I was, I was a mess. <laughs> I was in and out of bed for a year and a half or two because I had back problems, and I just had this photo of Ramana Maharshi on my wall, and I would just spend all my days just lying there and just looking into his eyes and feeling like, you know, just take me because I, I felt like I was done with my life. I felt like I, it didn't matter if I died. I didn't care. Well, I'll tell you this experience. I would kind of crawl to the bathroom on my knees because I couldn't get up. And mm. yeah, but that was the kind of existence I lived in. And then one day I had a telephone on my bedstand right beside me and the phone rang. And I was so used to just ignoring all forms of life, wanting to contact me. And then this voice and it, it felt to me like Ramana's. It was just like, pick up that phone, pick up the phone. And it was a little shocking. And I did. It was kind of like from that point on, I felt the pain in my body that I was feeling. I no longer was able to just float out and merge into what felt to me like Ramana's heart. And I started to have to confront a lot of pain, physical, <clears throat> mental, emotional. And then a friend of mine suggested I go check out Samuel. So in 94, that's what I did. Hmm. Interesting. I just, I just want to tie something back in here. We were on a couple of different threads. One yeah. of them was doubt and another one was about pain and how for most spiritual seekers really what they're looking for is a way out of their pain and um, it's very easy to latch on to an awakening in consciousness as a way to, to do that as if we could hold on to half of being or let's just say a perception of half of being um, and try to stay there and try to stay exclusively identified with consciousness and try not to be identified with this pain body um, in the hope that we can get out of pain. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem that, you know, we, and I think I can speak for the whole Waking Down community here, have with that is that um, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was wondering that myself. I think you have to look at, you know, and, and the question you brought up before about, you know, what your Advaitic friends say about no self is what's being avoided? Is something being pushed away? Because even on a subtle level, if something is being pushed in away, it's duality. So you're still engaging in duality. It's not just one. Yeah, you know, and then some of them get downright fundamentalist about it. And, and that's something I've always thought about fundamentalists is that they're, they're pushing something away. And what, what they're pushing away, I think, is doubt, really. The experience is not so solid and, and stable and clear for them, whatever they've latched onto that it's invincible and therefore everything seems like a threat. Everything, te everything threatens to shake it or, or dislodge it. And perhaps that's what you're referring to as well. I mean, if, if you've kind of somehow glommed on to, you know, the consciousness value but not integrated it, then there's always a pressure to, to do that, to integrate it. And I'm just speculating a little bit here, and I'm sure you can explain it much better. But, you know, as long as you resist that pressure, there can, there's a tendency to, you know, reject everything and be, and be sort of rigid and, and fundamentalist about it. Does that make sense? Does that sound right? Yeah, and fundamentalists are really in reaction to something. And they're not connected with themselves. They're not in, they're not in connection with who they are because they're in reaction mm -hmm. to so I just I just want to quickly add that um, you know if you read any Ken Wilber or other you know understand basic human development we can understand that fundamentalism and duality are natural and necessary stages in the human unfoldment process. Right. So we don't have any big judgment about that. Yeah. But we need to make a distinction between 
the view of life as seen from duality and fundamentalism versus the view of life from the integral or unified perspective. It's a very different perspective. Yeah, it's an interesting point. In fact, I think it was Ken Wilber or Craig Hamilton or somebody who was saying that fundamentalist Christianity works really well for gang members. Not that it doesn't work for other people as well, but it's, it seems to be a particularly potent antidote for people who are in that mindset to kind of get them on to a much better stage of life. That's and, yeah, it's all stages. Yeah, and we're not picking on fundamentalists here, but just, I think bringing out, the, bringing out the point that there's so many... Yeah, fundamentalists at every strata of, uh, of spiritual exactly. development. I want to loop back to something, but you might have something in mind before I do. Well, yeah, I just want to, more on the same topic. Yeah. I think that a lot of what I observe most people who call them, you know, who think of themselves as spiritual seekers are actually pushing away is discomfort. It's not even necessarily the horrible pain although yes of course you know we prefer to be comfortable and happy we all we always have that going on but there's a certain level of just coming to terms with the fact that being human isn't as blissful as we might ideally want it to be right but where when we're in the idealistic phases of our process it won't take hardly anything for us to project our idealism onto whatever person or dharma or book or cause or whatever that we think somehow embodies the picture of our idealism. Mm -hmm. It certainly is what got me into the TM movement, I have to say, because, you know, here's Mari, she's saying life is bliss. And I'm like, I was 17. It's like, sure, great. I'll go for that. Yeah. Because I was suffering. You know, I bashed my head against the brick wall of the attempt to make life bliss for decades mm -hmm. until I finally started rotting out of that whole approach. And the only way really to get to the next phase is if you keep going after the bliss and the happiness and the only good and the only positive uh, until you start running out of energy for yeah. that. You well, know? you know, there's that saying in the TM movement, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. So it's actually part of the doctrine, not putting your attention on, on negative stuff. Although there is the, the instruction in meditation of if you feel some, some discomfort or pain or, or you know, some, something unpleasant, don't avoid it. Let your attention dwell on it, and that will help to dissipate it. So there's that, too. Well, I, I just want to say the whole point is to put your attention on it to dissipate it. Yeah. That's a completely different thing than this whole being disposition you eventually rot into, which is, I want to feel it because I want to feel it, because huh. I want to be here. Huh. So, anyway. Well, okay, go ahead. Did you have something? Uh, well, what if you uh, had a headache, though, a tension thing, that kind of, a physiological sort of abnormality? You wouldn't say that you'd want to just dwell on that perpetually. I mean, it, there is a point in healing it, right? It's not dwelling on it, though. And again, it depends on what phase and stage you're at in your process. Because I wouldn't say feeling it means dwelling on it. Mm -hmm. Feeling mm -hmm. it. And feeling it doesn't mean emoting. And feeling it doesn't mean swimming in chaos. No. Um, coming in. <laughs> you know, feeling just means being with. Being yeah. with your body. So, I, and, that's, and, and that's really important because I think oh, most of us don't know what to do when people say just be with it or don't dwell on it, which is why we avoid, which is why we avoid feeling the discomfort. We don't want to. It's like nobody's been with us at that place where we want to cope on top of right. the feeling of discomfort. And they go, no, sweetie, you can be here. You can be right here, and I'll be here with you. Right. And if we just be here together, 
this energy and attention that's been going into avoiding, avoiding. and wanting to run and jump is going to free up. Yeah. And more consciousness is going to be the result of that. Right. Free. Well, yeah, so that kind of corroborates what I think I was getting at, which is that the attention seems to have a healing influence. Or, you know, rather than diverting the attention and trying not to feel the thing, just be with it and, yes. and, and feel it. Uh, not not because you, you're a masochist and you want to feel something unpleasant perpetually, but because actually by feeling it, you the way you put it was the consciousness streams in or something, and, and it does end up eventually, you know, resolving or dissipating or whatever. It, it, it clears up and then you're, you're more liberal. At earlier, you, you traced the history of, of enlightenment uh, back to the, the ancients and uh, you, know, you, you referred to Buddha as breaking through a membrane, so to speak, and, and breaking into, you know, self-realization uh, through a membrane that may have been very thick 2,000 years ago by comparison to the way it is today. I was wondering now, and we haven't fully elaborated or discussed your whole concept of uh, embodiment and, and all that, which we will get into more. But when you look back at some of those famous ancient spiritual teachers like Buddha or Shankara or these people, do you get the feeling that, that they had gone beyond that initial break through the membrane and that they um, had progressed on to greater embodiment? I'm not much of a scholar of those ancient teachings, uh -huh. um, but I can tell you that I have heard that Buddha himself, uh, Buddha's teaching evolved after he had his first awakening. He tried to get some of his earlier students to understand what he came to later in life, but they, they didn't get it. Mm. They didn't want to hear it because his earlier teachings sounded more juicy to them, huh. uh, which I think is kind of a natural and pretty typical thing to happen. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how embodied anybody in particular got late, you know, later on in their process. I wasn't around to find out. Mm -hmm. I can usually feel these things when I read teachings. You know, and if you could find some of those later teachings and put them in front of me, I could give you a feeling about it. Because you can usually feel through somebody's language and the way they're expressing where they're coming from. The, the problem is that the humanity is still extremely young. And there's still very few people who even are awake to consciousness. It's just that now we've got enough who are awake to consciousness that that membrane that was separating our, you know, worldly attention from our spiritual attention is way thinner. You know, people these days are having awakening experiences left and right, and uh, even Oprah is into it. And well, we just, I just saw today Jim Carrey had a consciousness awakening. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on YouTube. You, there's yeah, this, this, great. Yeah, it's neat. <laughs> so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the way we break through into these different stages individually is highly related to where, what stage of development we're at uh, as a whole human beingness. Yeah. So right now, humanity has evolved to the point where we're, enough of us has awakened to consciousness, but we're still at this place where very few have awakened to the depth of embodiment that we're talking about, so even the consciousness people have a hard time hearing us or understanding what we're talking about. They think we're talking about something that, in their worldview, is backwards. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, if we're getting into the drama and the history and the story of our lives, they think we're going backwards. Yeah, it's we're an like, interesting point. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole movement of evolutionary enlightenment. You know, Craig Hamilton and Barbara Marks Hubbard and, and Andrew Cohen and all these people. And they, they talk about this stuff a lot. How how the very kind of 
you know, nature of spirituality itself is evolving and, yes, you know, absolutely. as a species and, and even what individuals among us might be experiencing compared to what they might have been able to experience, you know, in ancient past, it's, we're, we're, we're kind of like breaking new ground as we go along. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can, you, know, you can imagine that there were groundbreakers a thousand years ago that broke ground that some of us have not yet broken even, you know, because it's, there's always outliers, sure. that there are always people way up on the end of the bell curve. Um, exactly. You know, but as the mass of the bell curve seems to be shifting, you know, along. And <laughs> That's right. And the thing is, you know, you got so many people who have this belief that the wisdom that's been around for thousands of years must be the most advanced wisdom. Mm. Whereas if you look in any other field of human endeavor, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, very good <laughs> you know, point. Like, <laughs> Interesting. So, you know, somehow our ideas of spirituality have been pretty, very much stuck in the Bronze Age for a long time and uh, needs to be updated. And that's part of what we find ourselves having to do. But the truth is, it's not like we're out there proselytizing or anything of the sort. No. Uh, the only way this can work is if people get to the point where they start what we call rotting mm -hmm. out of their idealism and their belief that, you know, following a formalized spiritual practice is going to bring them freedom from suffering. Until they get to that point, there's really kind of nothing we can say. And we often do these workshops called Myths, M-Y-T-H-S, of Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And just really letting people get out what are all their myths about what enlightenment is. Mm -hmm. And boy, people go away very different after that. So, yeah. Well, you know, I guess by rot, by rot you mean disillusionment or, or sort of getting fed up basically with, with what you're doing, kind of hitting bottom with it and, and thinking, okay, this isn't going to take me any further, now what? Is that correct? Yes. If, if it's really that. See, people go through different kinds of disillusionment and despair. Mm -hmm. If they go into a, a stage of disillusionment and despair and hopelessness that's really about taking a few breaths and getting it together and finding the next great journey to the top of the mountain, um, then that's not the rot. What we mean by the rot is when you get to the place in your process where you've fallen back into the valley for the last time and you don't care about climbing up onto that mountain again. It isn't about getting up to some high experience anymore. It's not about the perfection or the ultimate or the final liberation from limits and, you know, and the difficulties of being human. Mm -hmm. When you're at that place, it can show up very differently. It shows up like, okay, how do I learn how to be here? It's also like you come to the place where you can't keep coping anymore mm -hmm. on top of a conditioning that you see isn't even real anymore. Mm. So it's kind of the, also the end of coping mm. on top of something. And it's right. just the surrender into this, what is. Reality, and what reality is, isn't just consciousness. Well, I'll qualify that statement for those who think the way I put it. Yeah, everything is consciousness, and yeah, everything is one thing. So, you know, I wouldn't even call it consciousness, I'd call it being. Mm -hmm. So we define being as consciousness plus phenomenon, mm -hmm. or absolute plus relative equals being. Mm -hmm. So when you get that being is one thing, and everything is being that, well, the way I would put it is, I can't hardly talk about consciousness anymore. 
I talk about it to people who need to talk about it that way because they're seeing it that way. But I don't see it that way. I don't see consciousness as a thing to get to or something to realize. I see it as, let's say, a dimension of being that can be awakened into, just as there are other dimensions of being that can be awakened into. So when you're rotting, you're falling into reality. You're falling into, I guess I can't escape the fact that I'm human. I guess I can't escape the fact that being human means sometimes there's pain and sometimes there's pleasure. And, you know, for some people, it's not even about pain or pleasure. It's about the, it's about the fact that it's constantly alternating and they can't control it. You know? And yeah. that's true. We can't control it. So for some people, the rot is the rot out of the illusion of control. For other people, it's the rot out of the illusion of separation or the rot out of the illusion of perfection. The way they were thinking about it. Yes, everything is perfect. But it ain't perfect the way we're thinking about it. Because if that's a thought, if that's not the whole reality. Right. It's just a thought. I want to play devil's advocate to something you said a minute ago. Um, I'm never, I'm, I'm no longer officially part of the TM movement, haven't been for many years. Um, I still meditate in a TM kind of way, uh, although with some slight variations. But I just want to say that it's not fair to kind of characterize an entire movement, TM or any other, as uh, in any particular way. Because I know people who are very much still involved in that uh, and whose not, not only experiences, but permanent level of experience and development uh, would blow you away. You know, some very profound stuff is going on. I mean, there's there's one guy who's a good friend of mine who he's been married for 40 years. He's got a couple of grown kids that probably have grandchildren soon. He he runs a, a very a fairly large business. Um, you know, he likes to ski. He's very artistic. He's got all kinds of real life stuff going on. Uh, but you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe uh, enlightenment with such clarity and and genuine um, authority as this guy. And he's really never done anything other than TM. So if he heard this talk about rot and so on, he would just think, eh, it's, I, I can't relate to it because I, I mean, he, he can he can certainly relate to having gone through many, many, many stages of unfoldment and shifts and and developments and so on. That's very real for him. And there's always actually something new when you talk to him because he's, he's kind of, he's always writing reams of stuff and very keen on exploring this whole thing as, as thoroughly and deeply as possible. Uh, but it's, it's more like his vision has been more on the, the road ahead as opposed to this isn't working and this isn't working and, and so on. It's just, I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that jibe with... Sure. No, that, that totally makes sense. And I, you know, I, I'm sorry if I gave the impression that we were characterizing a whole movement as being somehow inadequate or something like that, because I don't, I really don't feel that way. In fact, hey, look, I did TM for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Um, and it helped me. It really helped me. I, I, it was one of the more important things in my spiritual process. Yeah. And I think that it's very natural that if, when somebody gets one way or another, some help to awaken to consciousness, it's pretty inevitable that then they're going to move on from there and they're going to evolve to other and deeper levels of their own development. And, um, you know, they could say it's because of this or because of that, but I think it's just because we humans naturally want to grow and evolve and awaken to all of who we are, yeah. which is, in my opinion, all of being. That's who we are. Yeah, and I find that some, some people... It, 
it works for them to just really stick with one thing and just milk it for all it's worth. And other people, they, they, they throw, you know, they have a more potpourri kind of approach to it, try all kinds of things and energy work, whatever, you know, all the things. And that seems to work for them, to each it's his true. own. It's true. I think, you know, I, I think that um, there were some people for sure, like you just said, for whom a formulaic approach will work very well. But I suspect that even for them, they're going to have to break the formula somewhere because they, in fact, are awakening into being an absolutely unique person. Yes. You know, so sooner or later, you get to an edge of your own process that no one else has been to before, ever. Yes. And couldn't because they weren't you. Yeah. That's a very interesting point because what I observe here in Fairfield, Iowa, which, you know, is the home of Marshy University of Management, where there are several thousand TM practitioners, is that quite frequently people kind of pop out of there and it seems to either be caused by or, co or be coincidental with a blossoming of their individuality. It's like they become independent. This happened to me. I just started to get independent in my thinking and, in my, and, and I started to do things without worrying about you know, what the right thing to do was or what the movement would think or anything else. Just innocently doing stuff. In fact, I ended up getting booted out for being that way. <laughs> and uh, you know, but it, it sort of happened at the right time. The chick was the chick had pecked through the shell and was getting it was ready to get out of the incubator. And any more time in the incubator would have, you know, been bad for the chick and interfered with the other eggs. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy. I think it's absolutely true. I think any time you get any sort of a group that has some kind of a, a group mind around it that is especially reinforcing that the inside is good and the outside is bad, that creates a thick membrane, and then it takes more energy to peck your way through that. Mm. Hey, you know what? A lot of people even need that. I needed it. You you, you needed it. You know what? Yeah. We all needed it. The chick needs the shell. Well, when That's it, right. You know? Otherwise, it's right. not going to live. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the genius of being is guiding the shell. Yeah. Beautiful. So... Wherever people end up, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. And if there's something more, they will be drawn to that too. And if not, they don't need it. So yeah, that's how I feel it. I agree. There's this song by Rascal Flatts. It's called something like "God Bless the Broken Road That Led Me Here to You," and it's a love. Yeah, it's a love song, you know. But it could could be applied nice. to this. Uh, because the road, the road can be very apparently very devious and circuitous and so on, but it's it's really heading straight to you know where we need to go by our own unique route. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Huh. And you know, I, I just want to add that, you know, what you were talking about before about more the the, the more invitic types and that there's no one home and no person. I know that about myself. Mm -hmm. I often fall into all these different places where, the, you know, absolutely there's no person here. There's no one here. There's just this flow. Yeah, exactly. You know, I am, I'm more open, whereas somebody like Ted has a very different experience there. He's more in the world. You know, and his experience of, of being is, is very different from mine in many ways. And, I mean, that's one beautiful thing about the work we do and about the waking down work is... Because there's so many of us teachers, and there's so many different kinds of people. Right, you know, right. I had a very dark life in many ways. I, I dealt with some very deep, dark stuff, difficult material. And so I can be there for people who went through that and never thought they could awaken. Mm -hmm. You know, and Ted, 
can be who he is. And and so, you know, that's, that's it's the beauty of what we're offering here. Yeah. Is that everybody's different and mm-hmm. unique, and you don't have to fit into any process, or you don't have to, it, it's not a cookie-cutter process. Right. Your own individuality is honored mm-hmm. and held. That's how we find that people just drop mm-hmm. really fast mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're being held and met right where they are. Right where they are. That's one thing I've observed about waking down as an outside observer is that it doesn't have a static dogma. It's kind of honest and open and and willing to be vulnerable enough to continually re-examine itself. And I'm using the word it, but I'm I'm talking about people, of course, because that's what it is, is a bunch of people. But there's this sort of culture within within the group that is continually self-assessing and and willing to redefine things as, as need be. You know, according to what arises, according to you know, how, however the whole thing progresses, and uh, I find that to be just really refreshing and healthy, and admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took it took us a while to get there. We had our own various forms of shells and incubators going on. Yeah. You know, in the earlier days of this work, where you know we took what Samuel had realized and written and was offering to us, and we tried it on. And as it turned out, it worked really well for a lot of us. So as we moved, you know, from the early 90s into the late 90s, we started to realize that the ideas that Samuel had formulated and that we had all continued to formulate with him were missing some some big pieces. Mm -hmm. We went into all other forms of growth and learning about group dynamics and mutuality and how to do relationship. In the early days, there was just a bunch of heady guys sitting around talking Dharma. Yeah. In the next phase of it, there came uh, men and women, and the women wouldn't stand for this kind of behavior. <laughs> <laughs> women were a little more vocal then, right. yeah. at that point. Yeah. yeah, they became much more empowered and uh, wouldn't let the guys just be in their heads. Over time, you could see how the men and the women were getting together. First, Samuel and Linda and me and Hillary, and, and then some other couples. And now, we just came out of a teacher retreat. We're looking around the room, and just about everybody in the room is in a couple. Yeah. It's like we had evolved to the point over these years of learning how not just to be embodied, but to come into the world and come into relationship and bring our vulnerable hearts and bring our awakened beingness and really be there and learn how to do this skillfully. Yeah. And use relationship as a, as a path of much deeper awakening. Absolutely. Because that's when the wounded parts come up. Yeah. Is in relationship. Right. Is, so, is, is everyone coupled up because couples are attracted to waking down, or because people who were single kind of paired up within the group? First of all, they're not all coupled up. Right. But, no, most people came into this work uncoupled. Uh-huh. But what happens as you deepen in this awakening is your needs come up, and they're not right. taboo. Right. It's like your needs are your desires, and they're they're valid. They're worthy mm-hmm. because... It's, it's about fulfillment mm-hmm. on all levels. And so what ends up happening is these people find partners kind of out of necessity mm. to yeah. share, necessity to share with. They find partners within the Waking Down group or anywhere? Some, yeah, some do, some don't. You know, sometimes they find it outside. Does Waking Down work very well for people whose partner may not really be into it? We could look at two ends of the spectrum of what happens there. On one end of the spectrum... You got somebody who's really into waking down 
and the partner isn't, and they're kind of hoping they'll get into it, and you know that whole thing. And then, um, and then if they don't, their growth trajectories, the arcs of their growth trajectories, go in different directions. Yeah, and then it doesn't work. Right. But there are many people in our work, many people in our work whose partners are not in the work, and as long as the partner is, there's an openness to be, openness to. A, a, a kind of awakeness, mm -hmm. you know, and honesty, it, it works fine. Yeah, as long as they're tolerant yeah. or whatever, accepting. Well, they're yeah, tolerant, you know, just as, as long as they can have a depth. Because when you awaken, you drop into more depth and more of yourself, so you want to share more. Yeah, you need somebody there to share with. And yeah. there's a couple of things I want to say about that. I mean, sometimes... What will happen is you got a waking down person who's like, oh my God, I just have to find a waking down person. Maybe they even do find a waking down person. And then after a while, they're like, I don't care about waking down. I'm just being me. Right. You know? And then, and then their partner is like, oh, but I need you to be a waking down person. <laughs> and that won't work, or maybe it will. It's like every possible permutation comes up. Yeah. And I think that is actually one of the happy outcomes that goes on here. It's like, you know, waking down is in many ways a kind of um, passageway. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a vortex. And you go through it, and you come out the other end, and you graduate. Huh. And some people graduate into a completely different life that has nothing to do with waking down at all. Mm -hmm. They're like, thank you very much. I realized that I'm an archaeologist, and I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Now, other people might come out of that going, the depth of my being says, I don't want permanent relationship. So I'm just going to go have these serial monogamies, and if that's perfect for them, great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and then there are, you know, the few people who go through that passageway and come out the other end going, I want to be a waking down teacher and help other people go through this thing. Right. But it's not like we expect everybody to have any sort of reaction like that. Um, I, it's fine if they, you know, come here, have get whatever they can and go wherever they're going. Now, we're making it sound like waking down is, is basically some kind of a relationship group thing. But obviously there's there's this enlightenment component or consciousness component, which is a very important part of it, is it not? Yeah. It, I wouldn't yeah. call it a relationship thing. That's, that's a misunderstanding. Well, we've, yeah. we've talked so much about that that we've kind of, we haven't mentioned much that the word waking, you know, is... is well, that's is, it. Exactly. <laughs> you get it. It's like waking down in mutuality is the whole title of the work. Right. And uh, waking refers to consciousness. Down is embodiment. And mutuality is relationship, yeah. and that doesn't just mean interpersonal relationship, it means relationship with the world. Although you could also esoterically look at that as the relationship between consciousness, fairly absolute and relative. But as far as I'm concerned, as long as you're seeing that that's a relationship, you're not getting that they're the same thing. Right. So <laughs> would it be fair to say that the three things are like the three legs of a stool, and without, if there's a leg missing, the stool's not going to stand? You, exactly. you have to have the waking, you have to have the embodiment, and you have to be able to integrate that into relationships. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. In relationship with the world. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly why I think a lot of the um, various attempts at personal growth and spiritual development have been less than satisfactory simply because they haven't been integrated. They haven't been whole. Right. And when you, when you go after, funnily enough, if you just go after the realization of consciousness on its own, it's really kind of, kind of hard to get to it. Yeah. But if you let yourself be a body in relationship to the world while you're doing that, 
it's pretty easy. Now, would you say that uh, the three components, waking down, mutuality, develop sequentially, uh, usually in the same order, or is it a complete mix-up where they could happen in any order? It's both a mix-up and it tends to happen in an order. For instance, <laughs> is the down and the mutuality facilitated by the waking? In other words, they'll happen more readily if the waking is, is there yes. as the foundation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing is that the stage of humanity right now is a lot of the people who were attracted to the work in the early days were wanting the consciousness piece, and that's what they were focusing on. Right. Um, and so they needed to be helped into understanding that the down and mutuality were necessary parts of the whole process. But these days, people show up from any of those directions. You know, there's a lot of people who are sort of like uh, lifetime uh, workshop junkies, either focused on relationship or focused on personal growth. Yeah. And uh, so we help them to find the other, you know, one or two, you know, legs of the stool. Maybe what I'm suggesting is that maybe the relationship personal growth thing didn't work so well without the infusion of, of wake, awakening. You it's know? true. It won't. You, can, you can carry on with that for decades, but if you don't know who you are, then, That's you know, true. you've got a problem. <laughs> well, you know, I think many of us have had that very experience. I mean, I certainly was involved in a, in a work for a while that was very much about down, 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 down. You know, it was like getting down to the, the, the darkest material you can get into and then go even deeper and take that to the mat. Kind of looking back on that, I call that treading dirt. Yeah. Because until you've got a weight consciousness present there and a willingness to actually feel and, and process your stuff with other human beings, there's only so far down you can go and, and it doesn't work well. Yeah. It just doesn't work well. I used to use the analogy when teaching that, you know, it's a lot easier to dissolve a shovel full of mud in an ocean than in a, you know, just a bucket of water. Um, you know, it's, there's no place, right. for it, no place for it to go if you've only exactly. got a small bucket. <laughs> exactly. And when your consciousness is awake, well then, yes, any other material you, you're bringing your attention to, you're going to have way more resources available to deal with that thing. Yeah. If you're disposed to actually go into down and mutuality. Right. But, uh, you know, if you, if you have been for decades surrounded with a dharma that has suggested to you that that's the wrong direction, mm -hmm. you know, you can end up in a cul-de-sac for a while. Yeah, although we're not allowed the liberty of continuing to box ourselves in forever. Um, you know, some, something starts breaking down the doors. That's <laughs> sooner or later, it might be a disease, you know, it might be a divorce, it might be anything kind of throws the reality in your face and, and you have to deal with it. That's right. Absolutely true. Going back to what I was going to do in the beginning, which is have you talk about your initial awakening experience, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you were doing some kind of breathing exercise, and then you started crying a lot, and then you, you just had this breakthrough, which I, I think people might find interesting. And you've already mentioned in this interview that you meditated for a couple of decades before that and so on, so people have a sense of you know, how you might have been primed for a breakthrough like that. But the actual breakthrough, I think, is worth recounting. Right, okay, so um, I think part of the history for me was I really hadn't learn to discriminate consciousness from mind very well. Um, and the mind has many different, many different levels, subtle layers and levels of it. Um, there are levels that are just about, you know, obvious gross thoughts, and then there are layers that 
are into vision and layers that are into understanding and meaning. You know, all these different layers of mind have the capacity to assume that they are being consciousness until you get the kind of help you need to witness the mind. And that's the sort of work that uh, Samuel was into with me after he got where I was in my process. In fact, I remember fairly early in my time with him, I went to him at some point and I said um, something like, uh, well, you know, after all the meditation and work that I've done in my process, you know, I think I'm pretty awake in consciousness. What do you think? And he said, I think you're pretty identified with your higher mind. Hmm. And so I went away from that thinking, that guy just doesn't get me. Really, I don't know if he's as awake as he thinks he is. He's yeah. just not. Needless to say, not too long after that, after you know some more help from him to to get the distinction, to, to to understand what it means to be witnessing even the higher mind, and to be watching the mind try to claim itself as consciousness and stuff like that. Um, yeah, then that's a very different kind of perspective to have. And I, yeah, that moment that day. I had been going through my own kind of oscillations around clarity of knowing myself as the witness and other times maybe knowing that consciousness was there but not certain that that was me and other times feeling like all is lost and I need to be doing you know another two lifetimes of practice and uh, and then this thing happened this day I was doing this breathing exercise with Hillary and um, I don't know something just took over next thing I knew um, I was just crying and crying and crying, and uh, something had completely snapped and let go. And uh, when all that crying was done, I sat up and I just felt what was going on. It, it, it's as if my mind had gone onto the screen. It's like, prior to that moment, I was identified with my mind and I didn't know it. So I was looking at everything through that lens. But from that moment on, you know, from that moment on until my second birth, it's like my mind became like my body. It was some. It was another object of my experience. It was something I could be aware of huh. as an objective part of myself. You know, and I make that distinction. That's right. part of myself, but it's the objective part. And mm -hmm. the consciousness then was the subjective part. And I remember taking a walk in Tennessee Valley uh, with Hillary, just kind of shocked and stunned that I had had this. That after you know, like decades of work. I actually had the breakthrough that I was looking for all that time. And I was in that, uh, the sort of glory of that for several weeks. A, a lot of electric energy. It was hard to sleep. Um, I felt enlightened and, um, you know, at the time didn't have any problem letting other people know how enlightened I was. <laughs> Go over too well. <laughs> so that wasn't your second birth? No. You oh. know, I, I thought it was because I felt like I had been reborn. Yeah, I felt like I had landed back in, a, in my baby body, but now I was witnessing it. Right. It was. It was. You know. It was very strange. And after a few weeks of this, I went back to Samuel and I said, "Samuel, is this what you mean by the second birth?" And he's like, "No, I don't think so." Huh. Now, you know, here are some things I want you to start exploring. And um, and then a couple of months later, that's when I fell into my second birth. As it turns out, I was sitting around with Hillary and some other friends at a at a party, we had a gathering. People were having a wonderful time and chit-chatting and smiling and laughing. And at some point I realized, I actually don't feel like that. 
I'm not in a party mood. I feel kind of glum. I feel kind of down and uncomfortable. And I just sat down and started feeling myself. A student who had been a practitioner in the work, who was a senior practitioner at the time, came and sat down next to me, a woman, and um, she was just talking with me and listening to me, and, and, and we just sort of fell spontaneously into a gaze. And as I was gazing with her, I G- could Gazing see... being something that's done in the Waking Down group, you, you gaze. Yeah. Okay, got Yeah, it. but you know, here it wasn't, you know, a formal practice, it just was just like, it. Yeah. we were talking and we fell into a gaze. Mm-hmm. And as I was gazing with her, I could see that she was being the ocean and she was being the waves. And they were the same thing. And I realized, oh my God, I have been avoiding the down parts of the waves my whole life. And I'm sick of it. I want to be here. And I just sort of fell. I just sort of fell. And it's funny because Hillary used to tell me how much up in my head I was. And uh, I used to say, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I'm here, you know? And right after that moment when I fell down into my body, that's when I knew how much I had been up in my head. I'd been not only in my head, but identified in consciousness up here. Mm. So it's as if the center of my identity fell from here into here plus my whole body. Hmm. And so the average was lower. I just kind of fell into this whole earthly embodiment all of a sudden, really in a split second. And I knew right after it happened, oh, that's what he means by the second birth. Hmm. And it was completely different. It's not like the consciousness awakening at all. It's awakening to life. And for me, you know, I'm one of these very Vata kind of people whose process is high frequency and rapid high contrast shifts. Um, That was the second awakening for me. Hmm. Then, like about two, three years later, the third awakening for me happened in this relationship with Hillary. It was an awakening into mutuality. And for us, because that wasn't just my awakening, it was a thing that happened together. It was sort of an awakening out of the illusion that all we are are, you know, Ted and Hillary, into the awakening that there is Ted and Hillary and us. And it's like another shift in identity that got me further out of a fixation in the localized aspect of self. And from that point on, I started to understand and see how other entities exist in the world in relation relationship entities and how these entities can actually awaken to themselves mm-hmm. that's ted dharma um probably for another day to talk about ted talks ted talks like <laughs> <laughs> shanti says that awakening moves from the head to the heart to the gut mm-hmm. kind of sounds like what you were saying there i think awakening you know uh, aziz talks about these three centers mm. Um, and I think awakening. He's a some su- Sufi guy, guy, isn't he? He's a Sufi, Aziz. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so yeah. Huh. Um, some people actually awaken in the gut mm. first, and these are tend to be the people who have more of this emptiness and no self kind of awakening. Mm. Some people awaken in the heart right away, and for them, the awakening appears to be all about love, right, and connection. Um, and other people awaken in the head, and it appears to be about consciousness, you know, and maybe emptiness, um, or, or separateness, you know, or kind of like pristine, pristine consciousness, untouchable, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and do you think I, that however people awaken, then they have to uh, actually fill in the other ones? Exactly. Yeah. 
the degree that they need to. To the degree Not that everybody is, natural, is right. balanced in all three areas. It's, right. It's very uncommon. It, it's it's like balance. it's like Ayurveda. You know, you've got a natural balance of the three doshas, but you got to have you know everybody's got some of all of them. Yeah. If you're exclusively in one department, then yeah, you got more work to do in the other department. Mm, interesting. Let's uh, let's kind of wrap this one up. Is there anything in particular that you know you feel like we really haven't covered that we ought to cover in this one in order to kind of make it complete? Uh, keeping in mind that we'll do another one, and, and before that other one, we can we can each give some thought to you know points we'd like to cover that we haven't done justice to or that need elaboration. But you know, if you have another question, that's the thing. It's like we didn't come here with an agenda, so we're. No. Whatever comes up in the conversation, we're happy to respond to. Yeah, that's pretty much. The way. I don't actually write down questions or anything before I do these. I just kind of they come to mind, and I could probably sit here for the next couple of hours thinking of more questions, you know. But it it reaches right. a certain point at which you sort of feel like, all right, you know, we've we've pretty much covered it for now. This is this is a good dose, and people aren't going to want to sit and watch this for three hours. <laughs> so uh, so why don't we conclude? Let's, you know, both think and... Wait, I felt an <laughs> Oh, you, you felt a, a something. Okay, okay good. I, I guess I, what I just want to say is just everybody is so unique and different. And different things work for different people. Yep. But I, I just want to say, especially for people who just feel like they'll never get it, mm-hmm. you know? It, it's just not true. You don't have to fit yourself into anybody's map anymore. It's a very and, good and, point, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and more, and more to come on that. Uh, you're both from the East Coast. You probably saw Sly in the Family Stone, or, or was he from the West Coast? But, you know, different strokes for different folks. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. And I think it's, it's a good point to end on, actually, because it's a very important point, because it's a point that so many teachers and teachings and religions and, and, and everything in this world don't get. And they all they, they they end up all feeling that everybody should do what they're doing and that their thing is the best. And you know, if it's not the best, why am I doing it? Therefore, it must be the best. Otherwise, I should be doing exactly. something else. But I'm I'm not doing something else, so this must be the best. And uh, and therefore, everybody else should do it and be like me. And uh, you know, G- God is not a Nazi. You know, he, it's not a one size fits all universe. Look around. Look at nature. Look at animals. Look at plants. He loves variety, huge variety. And so, why shouldn't Variety show up in the spiritual realm sure. as as much as it does in the natural world. Not that the two are really separate, but exactly, they're not separate. And I would say God is a Nazi plus everything else. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Good way to end. Good point. <laughs> I couldn't hold you back. <laughs> okay, so our concluding point in this interview is God is a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else. And everything else, right. <laughs> He's also a Jew and a Christian and an atheist and a, yeah. an agnostic. And a, I mean, it depends fish. how you define that, but I'd say God is everything. Exactly. And Marshi used to say Brahman is the eater of everything. To my mind, that means that all the paradoxes you can think of, and, and, and for everything you can think of, there's a paradoxical opposite. It's all contained in the greater wholeness. Absolutely. And we are that wholeness, you know, and, and the sooner we can learn to function that way, the, smooth, yeah. the smoother life will be. Amen. That sounds like a good place to conclude. All righty. So thank you so much. We will do this again sometime soon. My name is Rick Archer, and I've been talking with Ted Strauss and Hilary Davis, who are senior teachers in the Waking Down and Mutuality group. 
and probably I'll be talking to some more of the folks too. I mean, Max Goler is an old friend of mine, and June Kanopka, and yes. many others. So we'll get them on the line one of these days. But I try not to make this the waking down show. I want to intersperse all kinds of people. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And for those of you who happen to be just listening to this, there are various ways of doing so. It can be viewed on YouTube. It can be viewed on batgap.com, which is batgap.com. There are about 20-some-odd other ones prior to this that I've recorded that can be seen there. There will be many more in the future. You, you can subscribe to it in a, as a podcast. There are chat groups where people are talking about this stuff. In fact, people might start asking questions when I put up your particular page, and I'll let you know when they do, and you can respond to them. But uh, it's a multifaceted sort of thing that is that keeps me entertained. I just wanted to let you know that. In the closing titles, you'll see, uh, again, BatGap.com and and the names of some of the people who are responsible for making this happen. So thank you very much. And uh, until next time, this has been Rick Archer talking with Ted Strauss and Hillary Davis on Buddha at the Gas Pump. Thank you so much, Thanks, Rick. Rick. Thank you.